Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, we're going to be in verses 17 through 34. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you this question to get the juices flowing here. What is required? What is required for a person to be a member of a church? What is required for a person to be a member of a church? Well, we would say certainly they would have to have heard the gospel. They need to have heard of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sin. And uh, they need to respond. A person must have put their faith and trust in Christ alone uh, for their salvation. Be a Christian. We'd say this too. They need to evidence their faith through baptism. Uh, obedience in baptism. A public proclamation. A public profession of their faith. Uh, baptism is that public uh, visual a visual of entrance into the family. So that's necessary. And then, of course, the church responds to that person who professes their faith in Christ by welcoming, welcoming them into the body. And then we don't think about this sometimes. We say, okay, that's it. That's, that's, that's when a person's a member. And it's true, they become a member like that. But all of us also continue to be members, don't we? A person who becomes a follower of Jesus is then a follower of Jesus. And we know Christians persevere. A person who is a follower of Christ is not going to be plucked out of God's hand. He's going to finish what he started in them, Philippians 1.6. And so members of a church are followers of Jesus. And then in our following Jesus together as a church, we know that baptism is that initial visual of entering into the family and as you, you probably already know the answer because of what we read th- this morning. But what is that ongoing, continual visual of our participation together as a family? And the answer is the other ordinance, the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. So it makes sense uh, then that people who participate in the Lord's Supper are people who have heard the gospel and put their faith in Christ who have obeyed the Lord and identified with Christ in baptism, and who are actively following Jesus together with the rest of the church. Now imagine that we came to value something as a church or individuals in the church. We came to value something outside of these criteria that brought certain of us together in a sort of click. This click and that click, this group of people, that group of people. And a clique that excluded others to such an extreme that when we participated in the Lord's Supper, those others were even excluded from identifying with and participating with the rest of the church, even in our communion. Now this is the very thing that occurred in the church at Corinth. Something that God gave us to include all those who are following Christ together as a church, to remind us and to facilitate our unity in Christ, our communion together with Christ as a whole body of believers. This was being used and utilized in isolated groups to the exclusion of others who had been welcomed into the church. They had been welcomed in and now were being treated as second-class citizens, or really, actually, as no citizen at all. And for reasons that had nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing to do with faith or faithfulness in following Jesus. So let's look at verse 17 as we begin. 
through this passage to see exactly what's going on here. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Remember in the previous passage at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11, there was commendation and then explanation. You're doing, you're doing great. You're doing right. Here, let me explain to you why you're doing what you're doing. But now, not so much. There's going to be rebuke. He says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So I think we can probably agree, all of us, with these statements. Going to church is to be for the better. Would you agree with that? When we go to church, we want it to be for the better. Church is not to be for the worse. We don't want anybody to go to church and say, I am worse off having been there today. None of us are going to say, hey, I I can't wait to go to church today. I hope we all can leave worse than when we came. Come as you are, leave worse. That's not our motto, is it? What we would want to be said of us is this. When we get together, when First Baptist Church is together, it is for the better. We have to ask these questions, though. What is better? What is better? Is it like a Burger King, have it your way kind of a thing where we're pleasing all of everyone's personal taste, which is impossible, right, by the way? It's not that. Uh, we certainly would rather specialize in what the Bible says mankind needs than to know what the latest whims or latest trends are. There is no end to that once you start spinning those plates. And let's ask ourselves this question. Who gets to define better? Who defines what better is? Who has the authority to define better? And the answer to that, of course, is God. God alone has that. And if we look at a passage like Romans 8, we can define better pretty quickly. Where in verses 28 and 29, we learn that God has promised to work for our good, to better us through all things. And that good, or quote-unquote that better is defined in verse 29 as being conformed to the image of Christ to make us more like Jesus. So better is not richer, accumulating wealth, although better should result in better stewardship. Better is not healthier, being free from all disease, though it should result in doing fewer things that would harm your health such as addictions or gluttony or laziness and so on. Better does not necessarily mean being more popular, well-liked by more people in the community. It doesn't necessarily mean getting promoted at work, climbing the corporate ladder. In fact, for many Christians throughout the years, better, becoming more like Christ, has resulted in becoming less popular and or getting mistreated at work, or of course, or of course uh, other more severe forms of persecution. Better should instead be defined with words like love, joy, peace. You hear where we're going with this? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In a time like we are in today, will that make a Christian stand out? Yes. Are my interactions in the world full of 
faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and love and joy and peace and patience. Or other words like this. Sacrifice. Selflessness. Righteousness. Being unspotted by the world. Purity. Generosity. Graciousness. Unity. And of course, we could go on and on with those words. Church, when we get together, when we come together, it is to be for the better. Now, this question, who is the target for the better? Is everything supposed to be better for me? We say, wait, wait, that's kind of setting us up, isn't it? Well, let's ask it this way. Is church supposed to better me? And if we have a right frame of mind, right definition of better, should going to church better me? Hopefully we would all desire that. We want church to better us. Hopefully we would be blessed by our time together in the word and prayer and relationships and know and see how we have been encouraged and given opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. Uh, we might even look at a certain ministry or a relationship and say, wow, that's going to be hard. That's going to take a lot out of me. That's really going to be a sacrifice. And that kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? So even doing those things that are hard, that take a lot out of us, and sticking to it and finishing well, that betters me. And then when you do that, that betters you. Maybe growing and learning and then giving of myself for the benefit of others is benefiting and bettering myself. And then also, and in a spirit of Christ-like, gospel-centered love, should my going to and participating in the church better others? Others. When I go to church, when I consider serving in the church, and, and specifically in this passage, even when we're participating in the Lord's Supper, am I thinking about how my involvement is going to better others? And Paul rebukes the church in this passage because when they came together as the church, it wasn't for the better, but for the worse. They were elevating themselves or acknowledging themselves as superior in a social way, in a worldly way, really. And it was for the worse, not just for them, but the whole church. And we might say it this way to think about it correctly. It didn't just cause worseness for others in the church, but it was also for their own worse. What they felt, felt was better, was worse for them. So it's good to ask ourselves these types of questions. Why do I come to church? Why do we go to church? Uh, what could be better for us to do on the Lord's day than to be here together, serving and edifying one another? Uh, how do you define a better day at church? Boy, today was a great day. Why? And in what ways can we prepare our hearts and minds to be bettered when we gather? And when you come to church, what are your desires? What are your goals in making the day a day of bettering, of growth for other people? When we come together as a church, we are to better one another. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, and the word translated as church means literally an assembly, a congregation. Uh, we know that the church is not the building, it's the people. 
And sometimes we also use that idea of, of the church being the people to say things like, we are the church, as in every day of the week, no matter where we are, at home, at work, at school. And while it's true that we are God's chosen people and the bride of Christ in the universal sense, the universal church, in this context, in this passage, the way it's being used, the way the word is used here, the church isn't a church unless it's gathered together, unless it is assembled. That by definition, the church can't be the church if it doesn't gather together. And that's why the commands and ordinances for the church are obeyed and are exercised by the assembled, congregated, gathered people in local churches. Paul was writing here to the church that had been planted in Corinth, and they were having church when they were gathered together as, it says in this verse, a church. In our context today, we are thankful to be having these meetings, as we've been doing since uh, March 15th. On March 15th, we, we split the church in half, didn't we? We've been in thirds for the time being. We're thankful to be able to be together, to see people who are a part of our church I am super thankful to be preaching to people and not a camera on a scaffolding in the middle of the auditorium here. I'm thankful to hear you singing, for you to be able to hear one another singing praises to God every Sunday. But the first Baptist church of Mount Pleasant will not have begun to gather together again as an assembly, as a church, until we gather together as a church. And we long for that day and look forward to that day. Uh, we might hear sometimes uh, concerning the book of 1 Corinthians about the idea of there being several little churches in and around Corinth, and Paul was writing to the church. So when he was talking to one of them, he was talking to all of them, like a bunch of smaller churches. But what does the verse say? When you, all the recipients of the letter, come together as a church, They met together in different places and in different numbers throughout the week, uh, like homes or small groups. Um, But each Sunday at the time of the writing of this letter, the Christians in Corinth gathered together as a church. Uh, Probably in the home of one of the more affluent members, someone who had a house big enough to accommodate everyone, to fit everyone. And actually, uh, we know from Acts, at least initially, it was the home of Titus Justice. Uh, Remember, right next door to the synagogue, no less. And by this time, this church, the church at Corinth, had divisions. Continuing in verse 18, For in the first place, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be, this verse is a little bit of a bummer, there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There must be factions that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And the word for factions is where we get the word schism. And that word means tearing, cutting. This is not just a difference of opinion in the church. This is a person or people taking unbiblical matters and splitting the church. Not like we did March 15th. Okay, that was just a little bit of a joke. Splitting the church. Tearing it apart. And those who are genuine in the faith in those times are proven. 
genuine, meaning approved, tested, put through the fire, and found to be authentic, sincere followers of Jesus. Which then, given the way this is written, those who split, who tear apart churches for unbiblical and selfish reasons are proven to be what? Not genuine. Tested, put through the fire, and shown to be insincere. Not authentic. False converts playing religious, churchy games. And though these things must occur, as Paul said here, to prove our genuineness, we are not told, however, in Scripture to simply let people tear the church apart without doing something about it. We might say, well, you know, if somebody's doing something, we know it's bad, we know it's tearing things apart, we say, well, you know, uh, these things are supposed to happen, so let's just not do anything about it. That would be a wrong response. Okay, in fact, part of our proving our genuineness is in how we respond. Listen to this from Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. Uh, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, sounds like Matthew 18 there, have nothing more to do with him. This idea is where we get the phrase, or the word, excommunicate from. There was communion together in the church, but then because this person is unrepentantly, sinfully tearing apart the church, they are removed from our communion together, have nothing more to do with them. Verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, it says in this verse, he is self-condemned. The church's act of removing them is not the act that condemns them. They don't become condemned when they are removed from the church. It's simply the removal of them simply affirms what is already true. They are not following Christ. That person is not a follower of Christ, and therefore they cannot be in communion with the church. So factions will occur. There will be times of division, divisiveness. There must be factions among you, but they are not to be tolerated. And factious, divisive, quarreling people are to be rebuked. And if unrepentant, removed from the church. Uh, What Christians and churches are prone to do is to try to smooth things over and and put out any potential fires, avoid any kind of uncomfortability. But instead of making peace and doing that, they're only faking peace. Instead of putting out fires, they're only fanning the flames, which may burn all the brighter and all the hotter in some other church that they now are at. And we might not feel the heat anymore ourselves, but remember, when we come together, it is for the better. The better. And if we don't feel the heat anymore because we've smoothed things over, if we don't feel the heat, but we know that other brothers and sisters in Christ now are feeling the heat, that is not for their better. Uh, We should do something about that. And think about this now. Is off me and on you, is that really a Christ-like way to handle anything? Remember, the gospel is rooted in Jesus being willing to say, off you and on me. Your sin off you and on me. 
And remember, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And he, in this passage, is calling this church out for their sin. Ignoring it, blowing it over, that is not Christ-likeness. That is not what the Apostle Paul is doing, even in this passage. If you really, truly want to smooth things over, you have to be willing to remove the rough edges. And please understand this also. After having said all that, questions are good. Please don't hear me saying this and go, oh, we can't ask questions or say anything contrary to what Pastor Andy thinks. I'm not saying that. Not saying that. It's okay to ask questions. It is good to share your thoughts. Okay, but would you agree there's a difference between asking questions and sharing thoughts to build up, to learn, to hear someone, or to teach, to work together to strengthen one another. That's good. There's a major difference between that and asking questions or sharing thoughts or saying something kind of out of the side of your mouth when you're walking past somebody in order to stab, to weaken, to tear, to put down, to divide. And when it becomes apparent that a person is using their words to do that, whether it's the pastor's, or the deacons, or the very newest member of our church, they are to be rebuked. That's wrong. Let's not be that way. Now, we could argue that we've already studied several such divisive issues in the church at Corinth, in the first 10, 11 chapters in this letter. But now, starting in verse 20, Paul refers to the specific division concerning the church's practice of serving in the Lord's Supper. So let's direct our attention to that. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You might think you are. It might say that in the church bulletin, but you're not doing it. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Notice the contrast of the Lord's Supper versus his own meal. In Acts 2.44, we're told that the first church in Jerusalem had all things in common, and they came and shared them with all. The first church in Corinth had come to receive. They came to get their own. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is actually a very strong rebuke from Paul. He's saying this. If you want to eat and drink like that, just stay home. Don't even come to church. Just stay home if you're going to do that. You're only hurting people. That's for the worse, right? And we see this in Acts 2.42. We see the early pattern of the church in the Lord's Day. And it was called the Lord's Day initially. Remember, uh, Saturdays for the, Jew, for the Jewish people is the Sabbath And the church began meeting on Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection, and it was called the Lord's Day. And the Sabbath, it was the Sabbath from what? For the, for the Jews, their calendar, their day starts when the sun sets, right? So sunset to sunset was the Sabbath. And then we changed that to Sunday with the Lord's Lord's resurrection, and Sunday is the Lord's Day. And this is what they did in the early church. They gathered together to receive teaching from the apostles. 
This is what we're doing right now, except I am not an apostle. Okay, know that. I am not an apostle. Recorded. Okay, we know that. Uh, But they gathered together to receive teaching from their apostle, from the apostles. And they would do things there like singing together and giving and all the kind of things that we do on a Sunday service. They also had time afterwards of fellowship. And quite probably while others in the church were preparing the food, the kitchen team were getting the food ready. Then they ate together. Uh, the closest thing we might have to that today is our carrying meals, where everyone brings something and, and we all go through the line and share together. Uh, these meals came to be known then as love feasts. And at the end of the meal, they would move on to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Does that make sense? So for us, it would look like this. We have church in here. We go out from here in the hallways in the gymnasium fellowship hall area. We're hanging out, getting together. The kitchen team's in there making, putting the food together, setting it all on the tables and whatnot. We go in there and eat. And then when everybody's done and we're cleaned up, we come back and we serve the Lord's Supper. That'd be the order of events for the early church. And then after the Lord's Supper was done, we're still at church. Yep. After the Lord's Supper was done, they had a prayer meeting. Okay? Sounds like a great day, doesn't it? That sounds like a great day to me. Maybe we should do that sometime. What do you think? And I'm not just talking about Sunday night services, okay? I mean like, let's have a day where we have church, where we get food ready, we have lunch together, we come in here, serve Lord's Supper, and then have a prayer meeting. I think that would be an awesome day for our church. But, now, take that time of fellowship and take the wealthier, the more affluent, more popular people because of their affluence and put them on one side of the room. Maybe we'll say they're in the gym on the kitchen side of the gym, okay? They're all hanging out there. Or maybe even in a separate room because if they're meeting in the home of Titus Justice or another person's home, they may not have one room that can accommodate everybody at one time. So maybe even in a separate room. And then take the poorer, those who are not as affluent, and notice that they're not lazy. They're not trying to mooch off of people. They're just poorer. Remember, Paul said to Timothy, if a man doesn't work, let him not eat. It makes sense in this context, doesn't it? So they're not being lazy. They're not trying to live off the system of the church. They're not, they're not being like that. They're working. They're trying, but they don't have the same resources as others. These poorer people uh, were left to the other side of the room. So imagine if we were doing this and we had all of the uh, upper middle class and up people on this side of the gym and everybody else was on the far end of the gym at different tables on the other half of the court. Relegated even potentially to another room in the house. And then when the food is ready, it's delivered, brought out of the kitchen, taken where? To the table up close to the kitchen. Taken just to that place. It's delivered to the wealthy first. And when the drink comes out, it's taken straight to the popular table, to the cool kids' table. And taking no thought, no thought for their brothers and sisters, that table, those people consume it all. All. Imagine if we had a carry-in dinner after the service and we had a certain clique of people giving that, like, seats taken kind of approach. Don't even sit with me. How, how dare you even think of sitting with me, right? And imagine we prepped all the food in the kitchen. Our kitchen team brought it all out, the water and the lemonade, right, to the cool table. And left the other half of the church without, just sitting there, watching as they ate. And when all the food was gone, 
and only half the church or whatever percentage it would be had eaten, they declared, right? And it wouldn't have been everybody who declared because some people didn't even eat. But those who had declared, well, that was a great Lord's Supper. We've had communion together. Paul says, that was not the Lord's Supper you just ate. That's ridiculous, right? So then in verse 23, Paul gives this starkest of contrasts. Contrast that, what I just described to you, to the sacrificial love of Christ in the face of betrayal, selfishness, and sin. Verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. And this is the first, the book of 1 Corinthians was sent to churches before any of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this is the first recording and sharing of Scripture concerning the Lord's Supper. I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, in the face of betrayal, that's so important for us to see there, while others were doing him wrong, not when everything was all perfect and sunshine, when others were doing him wrong, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, and the word here for thanks is where we get the word Eucharist from, when he had given thanks, he broke it, He broke the bread to share it and said, this is my body. This represents my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus reminds the disciples, and we are reminded every time we participate in the Lord's Supper, that God the Son took on flesh, lived a perfect, holy life, sinless, righteous life in that flesh. And then willingly gave it up. Gave up his life for the church. All of us individually, all of us corporately. Christ's body was given. It was shared and sacrificed for us. And we weren't sitting at the popular table. We lacked the most important quality. Righteousness. Any righteousness we want to put together is just what? Filthy rags. We weren't there. We didn't have it. So Christ provided it for us. When we come to the Lord's table, we come knowing that we are here. All of us are here because of Christ's sacrifice for our sin and his gift of righteousness put to our account. Nobody comes any other way. In the same way, verse 25, he took the cup after supper. And this was called the cup of thanksgiving in the Passover meal. Saying, this cup is, it represents the new covenant in my blood. Remember, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Christ's blood was shed and the covenant is therefore secured. Covenant. No one can ever pluck you out of his hand because God has made with us a covenant. He said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this drink or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so you see, the Lord's Supper points us to the gospel. It points us to the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus. It reminds us that our place in the family of God under the new covenant This covenant of grace is purchased through the shed blood of Christ alone. Imagine taking communion 
eating bread and drinking the cup and thinking that the act of it, the eating and the drinking, is going to save you, is going to make you a little better than when you came, is going to wipe away a little dirtiness and, and put on a little cleanness so that you're a little bit more ready for heaven than before you came in. Imagine thinking that way when the purpose of it is to remind us that our salvation has already been purchased in full. We don't have to come to the table of the Lord's Supper hoping it will be enough. We get to come to the Lord's Supper knowing that Jesus did everything on our behalf and that it was enough. It is finished. The Lord's Supper points us to the fact that the God of the universe, who is holy and just, sacrificially gave of himself for our benefit to his glory. And contrast all that with the people who are eating gluttonously, getting drunk, not sharing, excluding people who are in the family. The very point of the Lord's Supper was lost on those people in the church who were doing that. Had they been considering what they were to remember in the act, the very way they had been participating in it should have been abhorred. They were acting like they were celebrating Christ by being and acting in the exact opposite of his character and of his love. This was an unworthy manner of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And that's what Paul says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Selfishly celebrating the selflessness of Jesus doesn't work. To mistreat the ones whom Christ died for is to show contempt for the sacrifice of Christ. They weren't serving communion. They were mocking it. And they were mocking Jesus. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, there was an examining of self, and there's a discernment of the body. Eats and drinks judgment on himself. I'll simply put, if I think communion is only time for me and Jesus, if I think that the Lord's Supper is just me and Jesus' time, I'm missing the bigger picture. When we observe the Lord's Supper, it's, us and Jesus' time. And that is why, verse 30, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Think about Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5. Paul is speaking of Christians here because uh, he uses the Greek word for sleep. The word is translated as dead, but the Greek word is sleep. And this was used as a euphemism for the death of a believer because Christians, we know this, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And one day, what's going to happen to our bodies? We're not dead dead, are we? Our bodies will raise as Christ rose from the dead. But God allowed some in the church to get sick and even die <clears throat> physically in conjunction with this instruction from the Apostle Paul to prevent them from mocking Jesus and his sacrifice anymore. It was that important for this church to get this right. Verse 31. If we judged ourselves truly, 
we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. For the Christian, judgment from God comes in the form of discipline, never condemnation. Hebrews 12, 6 through 11. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that, you've, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If I'm sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and everything is wonderful in my life, something's wrong. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Parents, I think we might all agree that our discipline was less than perfect of our children. My kids were here in the last service. I did not ask them to to chime in at that moment. We didn't do it perfectly, did we? Some of us who still have kiddos in home, we're not doing it perfectly, are we? But God is. God is. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, our earthly parents, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. Never for bad. For our good. That we may share his holiness, which is far more valuable than any wealth this world could give you. For the moment, at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 33 in 1 Corinthians 11. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So, do not come together in a way that isolates, that separates that mocks the selfish, a selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus that will result in the discipline of the Lord. Instead, when you come together, come together for the better and for the better of all. So just some questions to finish up here to, for us to take away. Four questions. Number one, how can our worship truly better us? I think it's really fair for us to ask this in more ways than just the way we do the Lord's Supper. We have a big room. We can all get together in here. Our deacons take plates and trays with little cups and little pieces of bread so nobody can hog any for themselves, right? We kind of fixed that problem. (laughs) We took it from your choice, okay? But this isn't just about the Lord's Supper, is it? What about prayer? How are my prayers geared towards growth in Christ-likeness for my own self? Are my prayers just like get, 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 get? Or is there some growth and Christ-likeness that I'm seeking in myself and the people of our church? How can I pray for the betterment of others? We can certainly apply this to music. What is the purpose of music in the church? How can our music be for the better of all our people? I didn't just say for the taste and enjoyment of. For the better of all our people and truly glorify God. Certainly with the Lord's Supper, we can say this, not just about how much you're eating and drinking, but when we all come back together as the First Baptist Church, that first Sunday back, 
How can we each and every one consider the body and grow together in unity as we reflect on the love of Christ through the gospel during our monthly practice of observing the Lord's Supper? How can we make that, each one of us in our own hearts, how can we make that a day that is better for the whole church, to the betterment of our whole church? A greeting one another, fellowship with one another. When people come into the church, how can we help them be bettered and see how they could be bettered in their time here with us? How could we share ourselves in service in such a way that even guests are blessed to have been here? And in our service, in our ministries, if I'm asked or if I sign up to serve in the nursery or in junior church or children's ministry, Route 356, or to usher or to sing songs in worship or anything else, who am I doing that for? Why, what made me want to do it in the first place? Whose blessing am I truly seeking? And what we find And what I've heard some of you say is that when we truly give of ourselves for the benefit of others in our service, in our ministries, that's when we get the biggest blessing in return. That's the first question. Number two, relationships. Think about relationships. Is there any us in them in our church? Any attitudes or actions that would make a member or a visitor feel like they do not belong or would not easily be able to fit in? Do I see my church as the place I have selected to attend or as a people I have covenanted together to follow Christ with in unity? Church, what do we have in common? Jesus. God's grace to save us through the shed blood of Christ. And if that's the first thing on my heart, and if it's the first thing on yours, we will love one another. Period. Number three, the blessing of judgment, discipline, being for life. Let's think about that. Even if, even if God took the physical life of a believer in order to wake up the rest of the church as he did in, in, in Corinth, that believer would have been used by God for good and then enjoy Christ forever in glory. They probably, on the other side of that death, were thinking, God, thank you for using me that way. I sinned against you, and you used me like that? How merciful. We often equate hard with bad. (laughs) But we have to be careful not to reject all things hard. What is hard is often good. And for the Christian, it's always good. And when that hard thing is to the benefit of another, when you're stepping and say, I don't want to step into that hard. But when you're doing it for the benefit of another, it is very good. Praise God that he wastes nothing and uses difficulties and hardships, even in discipline as a result of our sin, for our benefit. Praise God. And then last, number four, when I come to church, and in this passage, specifically when I participate in the Lord's Supper, am I remembering my guilty plea? We are guilty. And Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for my salvation. 
Am I remembering that? Or am I participating in a tradition that I think will score me points? Like a selfish benefit. And we know this. One of those perspectives, the last one I just said, is evidence that you remain in your sin and that you're just as lost as any other sinner. The other, the first, trusting in Christ completely for the forgiveness of your sin is your salvation. It's your salvation. This is what we must remember in the Lord's Supper. The act of it should regularly uh, be a recounting of why we all belong together in Christ. It's because of Christ that we are together. Participation in the Lord's Supper is one, a proclamation. Christ is the way of salvation. It is a confession of faith. This is what we believe. And it is a witness. Jesus is my Savior and Lord. And all of us together, Jesus is our Savior and Lord. So may God continually confirm in our hearts and minds this witness, this confession, this proclamation as we serve him and worship him together as a family of Christ followers. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. Lord, we have nothing to bring. We are lost in our sin. We were lost in our sin. God, you proactively loved us in sending Jesus Christ to die our death, to pay the penalty of our sin, substituted in our place. And God, you gave us the record of his righteousness, that we could have fellowship with you, that we, be, we could be called your children, that we would even be rewarded for the good that we do that is only done in your grace. Thank you for your loving kindness towards us. And God, may we always remember this kindness, the truth of the gospel. And pray, Lord, that we would see each other in light of this, love one another in light of this, whether we're serving the Lord's Supper and spending that time together, whether we're just here at church together, spending time together during the week, singing together, fellowshipping together, eating together, whatever it is that we do, that whether we eat or drink, we would do all to the glory of God and to the betterment of one another. And Lord, I pray if there would be one here today who has not put their faith and trust in Christ, one here today who has come to church even if for years and has sung songs and given money and, and drank juice and ate crackers and served in different ways in order to score points to get into heaven. God, I pray that you would open their eyes today to the truth of the gospel, that they would put their whole faith and trust in Jesus and his shed blood alone. And God, may we be so a desirous of this message to be known to those who we know and love, that as we go from here, that we would share that truth, that you would use us to make more disciples of Christ. And may we as a church grow in our unity and in our Christ-likeness for the better and for your glory. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.